Empower Radio presents The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello and welcome everyone. You're listening to The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Each week we gather right here to make connections that break through that illusion of separation. And in the midst of today's global crisis, we recognize the need for radical change, both within ourselves and in our social and political institutions. But many of us don't know how to enact it. Are you looking for a practical approach to being the change? A new way of being that begins with the individual and yet can affect the whole system as inner and outer transformation are entirely interdependent. Our guest today offers a brilliant contribution to the conversation on wholeness and an ethos for revolutionaries. He says, in our age of fragmentation, the most subversive things we can do are to embody love, integrity, and practice. I invite you to take a few deep breaths, bring your awareness into this moment, Open your mind and heart and settle into your essential wholeness as I introduce our guest. Terry Patton speaks and consults internationally as a community organizer, philosopher, and teacher. Over the last 15 years, he has devoted his efforts to the integral project of evolving consciousness through practice and facing, examining, and healing our global crisis through the marriage of spirit and activism. He's the author, most recently, of A New Republic of the Heart, an ethos for revolutionaries. Welcome, Terry. Thank you so much, Julie. I'm delighted to be here with you. Thank you. I am delighted to have you here, and I'm delighted to hold this book in my hand. And I um, do believe I will be one of your biggest cheerleaders um, moving forward with this book. It will get out to many, and um, from my perspective here. We'll continue to share it in a lot of different ways. So I'm really happy to have this conversation today. But Terry, I have a traditional first question on the show here. And I know you will offer a, a particular um, evolved sense of response to this traditional question. So I'm looking forward to how you might share with our listeners, what does all things connected mean to you? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, all things are only apparently separate. They're, they actually don't even need to be connected. Saying that they're mm -hmm. all connected is a way of pointing to the deeper level of reality in which the apparent experience of separation is, is actually a superficial feature of something much deeper and more whole. And uh, so, to me, the, what, what I'm getting, just in my brief encounter with you, because we only had a chance to speak for a few minutes just now, I can feel that you're awake to a deeper level of reality, and that communicating that in a way that touches people's hearts and wakes them up to something deeper than their experience of fragmentation and separation is inspiring you. And uh, I'm delighted to, to feel that. 
Mm. Well, thank you. That is, that's a delightful response, actually. I, as I sit here, I'm thinking that, you know, it's, we're going on five years of the show and the, the whole conversation has evolved even in that five years where you're pointing out we're really not separate. So even saying all things connected, you know, we don't have to prove that anymore. It's really delightful that all the guests that are coming on and the new science, the spirituality and all these, the, the new movements that are emerging from this consciousness are really so helpful and delightful to really look at that the, the old paradigm of fragmentation and separation. So thank you for saying that. And um, yeah, thank you. I would love to hear, Terry, I, I've had you on my list of wanting to have you on my show for five years now. And um, this book came at this perfect time and I'm really happy to have you here. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your story and how you evolved into this spiritual activist and this champion of wholeness in our world right now? (laughs) Well, uh, when I was about six years old, my folks moved from the south side of Chicago to a place that was at that time just barely in the country to the west of the city, uh, a place called the York Center Community Co-op. And uh, it had been founded not quite 10 years before by members of a local Church of the Brethren and the Church of the Brethren is one of the peace churches, like the Quakers and the Mennonites, and they had bought a 70-acre cornfield, and uh, they wanted to own their homes in a cooperative fashion, where everybody together owned a share of the community, and it was a, a more of a real community. And they invited other people to live together with them as a witness for peace and brotherhood. So they invited people of other religions and even other races. So I grew up in a community where my parents' friends and my friends' parents were, some of them were Japanese people who'd spent World War II in internment camps. Some of them were conscientious objectors because they were pacifists. Some of them were civil rights organizers. Others were uh, people who had been involved in the labor movements. And uh, there was even one woman who was an unrepentant communist. And so I was kind of raised by revolutionaries as a kid. And I grew up in the Vietnam War years, and I was very interested in that stuff. So I ended up getting mentored by a whole bunch of co-op aunts and uncles and taking a a spiritually inspired stand for social justice. But uh, and, and that way, the form that took was I founded an underground newspaper. I was the SDS regional coordinator, even in high school. I was involved in Chicago area draft resistors. And when I went to college at uh, Ann Arbor, I led a bunch of demonstrations. And But in that process, I began to realize that my own being was not a presence of the peace and the ideals that I hoped to bring about, but that I actually and my fellow activists, that the revolution had to begin with us, that my consciousness needed to be transformed. Mm. And so that led me on a, a journey. I spent a certain amount of time as a resident fellow at a, at a growth center, a place a little bit like Esalen in Canada. Then I got drawn 
to find a, a spiritual teacher, and I found my way to an ashram where I did intensive spiritual practice for 15 years, from the age of 22 to 37. And uh, since that time, I've, uh, I've become awake to the limitations also of the inner work, that the revolution may need to begin with us, but it can't end with us, personally. To some degree, I began to loop back to some of the principles that I'd been taught as a kid, but a lot of it had to do with understanding that a more integral kind of spirituality and even a more integral form of activism was necessary. So during the last 15 years, I've worked closely with Ken Wilber in the Integral Institute. I was the senior writer of a book on integral practice that came out about 10 years ago. And, uh, and yet, really, more deeply than all of that, I, I was also awake and sensitive to what we might say, uh, what time it is on the planet, like the larger circumstance that we all find ourselves in. And that uh, is the reason, in a sense, that there is a kind of special urgency. It's been important to wake up since the beginning of humankind, but we're we're in a time in which things have accelerated so much that it's time right now in a very different sense. And my awareness of that has drawn me to, you know, we all kind of have to be a little bit like Paul Revere. We have to <laughs> wake up the townspeople, the fact that, that, that this, there is no time to waste. And our awakening and our getting woke our responsibility for our own consciousness and our responsibility for our shared life, I'll have to go up uh, an enormous, you know, we have to take a big leap. We have to go through, we have to graduate to a new stage of maturity in ourselves and in our relationships with each other. Mm. Very well said. I I appreciate in the book you do a lot of of integrating of activism and awakening and I think there's a whole chapter on there I can't remember for sure but I love how you've put those two things together and really invite us into all of that it's such an integral approach what, what can we do when when you look at activism and this invitation now to awakened activism i think you also say awakened or um spiritual activism and and i don't remember how you say it the opposite way you sound a lot like andrew harvey who wrote the forward in your book it's like it's time to wake up what would you say to the listeners out there who are saying what does this mean how how does awakening and activism go together well, first of all, it's probably important for me to say that I think activism needs to be much more broadly understood. We tend to think of people going to demonstrations as activists, or people maybe publishing a political journal, or writing your congressman, or uh, visiting your congresspeople, or calling their offices, or... Uh, campaigning, maybe running for office or, or participating in a political campaign as a volunteer or even a staffer. But, you know, people who change their diet, people who start businesses that have a social purpose, people who are being uh, 
that change in a in a broader way are also activists. Uh, in fact, in in the book, I identify uh, in the system, against the system, and around the system activism. So, if we understand that, then we begin to realize that activism, thus redefined, is like the outer expression of our morality. And and so I see spirituality expressing a fundamental urge in, in every human heart to to wake up, to be all we can be, to fulfill our total potential, to live our soul's purpose and calling and to express the 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 fullness of our self actualization. But then there's another impulse which is to be of benefit, to be of benefit to others, to to care for the world, to be love in action, to express our morality, to make a difference for others and and non-humans and, and, and the health of, of the whole. And in the end, I don't think you can separate those things. I don't think that you can self-actualize without being of benefit. And I don't think that you can really be fully effectively uh, of benefit without getting out of your own way, doing your work. So I don't think that the inner work is ultimately separable from the outer work. And when we recognize that, it, it, it can, you know, we, we, we tend to want to get it right, which tries to close down the big questions. And a big theme of my book is to help people be okay with the fact that, in a way, we're, we're presented by challenges. Humanity is presented by challenges at this point in history that are so deep that nobody has adequate answers to them. And being in the questions actually has more integrity than trying to put forward uh, an answer that isn't even really real. So there's a, a, a way of growing forever, like to, 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 to recognize that in a sense what life is asking of us is heroism or sainthood. It's kind of even more, you know, none of us could be enough of a saint or enough of a hero to fulfill all of what the moment seems to ask. And instead of looking at that as, uh, oh my gosh, it's too much, I can't do it, I, I think it's important for us to say, oh, wow, there's no end to how I can grow, how I can be inspired, how I can transcend my limits, that, that I'm going to grow and grow and grow and learn to love better and learn to be uh, a truer and better and more beautiful human being for every day, every moment of my life till I drop. And that can feel like a gift rather than a burden. So if we recognize that, then the unity of the inner and the outer work can strike us as this amazing, inspiring vision rather than a kind of impossibly big vision. Mm. Thank you for that. That uh, Again, that perspective of the unity of the inner and outer as this gift and this invitation for people. And when they step into that, literally moment by moment and, and really, really own and claim this opportunity, the ripple effect is incredible. So let's talk about one more of the, 
the cornerstone maybe or the foundation of this. I was thinking about um, buildings and architecture the other day because we're working on an older building and I'm thinking about, yes, that foundation is really, really, really important and it and it keeps the whole structure up. And yet every floor that's built going up is so important structurally as well with those support beams to keep everything level and healthy. And I'm, as I'm sitting here talking about architecture, I think about wholeness, this ethos of wholeness as this important foundation for us moving forward as we're looking at awakening and activism and, and what this really means when it's built from this framework, this ethos of wholeness. Uh, I think we can move with that joy and delight so much easier. Let's let's really talk about wholeness. You write a lot about wholeness and fragmentation and and even the integral theory of embracing our perception of, of separation in that it's how we really have evolved as a culture and a humanity with science and technology and what have you. So let's begin with defining wholeness, if you would, from your perspective and see where we go with that. Yeah, well, of course, what I say in the book, <laughs> as you, I think, know, is that wholeness is ultimately profoundly paradoxical, that it interrupts every... Uh, every definition with a reunification, and and that therefore the subject-object consciousness with which we define something that we can look at and see, well, wholeness is that in which we, you know, that is, wholeness is what is doing the seeing, it is that which is seen, it is the distinction, and it is the sort of the, the ocean in which the distinction uh, swims. So wholeness is uh, very hard to, to actually define. In some sense, we might say that it's the prior unity of all things. Uh, that in a way, you could, if you are a person who appreciates the word God, you would say, well, the ultimate wholeness is the divine nature of all things. But you would also maybe notice that that Radical wholeness is also always expressing itself in life. That, you know, when we get sick, the body mobilizes its immune response and it, and it heals. And when we are cut or we're wounded, we mobilize and we heal. The, the, there's a, a wholeness that reasserts itself in the face of fragmentation. Wholeness is not just a noun, it's in this sense, a verb. It's a, it's a, it, that wholeness surges forth. And, and that's particularly important in our time because we're in a time in which an accelerando of fragmentation is, well, it's terrifying. So many of us, you know, if we connect the dots and we look at the trends, we see what's happening to the natural world and the, you know, the, the many, many creatures who are going extinct, the seriousness of global warming and uh, habitat destruction and the, the dead zones in the ocean, all those things, it, it can seem as if everything is wounded, everything is falling apart. We see all the divisions in our politics, and it seems as if human civilization is spinning out of control, and it, it's easy for us to freak out. And yet, if we take it to heart, we begin to recognize, gosh, that wholeness, you know, 
my ability to be present to all that fragmentation in any way that I would want to be depends on my being in touch with the fundamental beauty and goodness of life itself, the wholeness of this very moment. And I sometimes say things are far too serious for us to lose our sense of humor. That, that, that humor and that intuition of the, of the fundamental trustability of existence. Yes, we will get sick and get old and die. Yes, we will lose things. You know, yes, all the things we fear are, are real in a sense, and yet life itself, just the, the, literally the, the beauty of the blue of the sky, the, the fact that sun rises every new morning, the cycles of the season, even if they are a little interrupted by global warming, there's so much to take in, and the wholeness of it all is so beautiful that when we awaken to wholeness, in a sense, we're awakening to that impulse in us to enact wholeness. The word, you know, it comes from the same root as hale and healthy. Some people think it might go back to an Indo-European root that has the same root as holy, like holiness. And so wholeness is uh, its a way of talking about integrity, coherence, health. And, you know, the, the opposite of it is fragmentation, separation, disease, uh, conflict, corruption. The reassertion of wholeness is kind of the issue of our time because we're living in a time of fragmentation and corruption. So uh, that's, you know, there's so much more we could say, but that's probably enough for now. Yeah, beautiful. You know, when you were talking and, and there was so much language there and you did do a good job of defining it, even though you just brought in the parts and parcels of, of our consciousness around wholeness. But do you feel like, it's also an experience. Can we experience our wholeness? It's this resonance. It's this embodied sense of our unity and our wholeness if we get out of our minds. Yeah, I do think that we can and do experience wholeness. Uh, but it's, it's, it's usually in a moment. It's in that moment when the eye notices the bird in flight and delights, or the qualities of the color of the new wildflower that's just sprung up and surprised you. And you just, that moment when you're, you're kind of boggled before you have the thought, where the delight just opens before you even think the thought, oh, is that a certain kind of flower? You know, you begin to identify it or you begin to think you know something about it. Before that even happens, maybe you get to a place where you just have a, have a split-second moment in which there's just a wow. The, the, the being is, is thoughtless and wide open. That's an experience of wholeness. It, it's a sense of wonder, or even as sometimes it's a sense of being in love. You see someone that you love, maybe your child in a moment of innocent delight, and the heart just opens. Those are experiences of wholeness. And yet the fabric of human experience is also always, you know, the body-mind apparently separate from other body-minds. 
apparently in play in a world of changes, apparently mortal, apparently vulnerable, apparently subject to loss. People who are dear to us get sick and maybe get depressed or get anxious or get hurt or die. All of those experiences um, are real too, and the wholeness of our being can't be a wholeness that flees from those aspects of experience, but but the actual intuition of the qualities of wholeness usually take place in these sort of blessed, surprising little moments where we don't own them. We can't control them. We can't hold them or save them or preserve them or perfect them but they'll take us by surprise. And they do all the time in any healthy moment. A lot of times laughter is a moment in which a kind of irreverent wholeness just overtakes the mind. Mm. I'm just breathing and smiling and taking that in, um, that irreverent, that is so, that is, oh, thank you. Terry, this is a beautiful place for us to really breathe deeply in this and take a quick break. And you're listening to the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. We're here with Terry Patton. After the break, we're going to talk so much more on a new republic of the heart. What does that mean? And how might you um, move into that republic yourself? So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Meditation Channel. Non-stop meditation music 24 hours a day in the new Empower Radio app. Music to empower your meditation, help you relax, sleep, or provide a calm background while you work. The Empower Meditation Channel is interruption-free. Listen now with the Empower Radio app, free in the App Store, or listen online at empower.fm. Soothe your soul, calm your mind. The Empower Meditation Channel. Every three minutes, another woman gets the news that she has breast cancer. And here are some of the first words she hears. Her two new oncogene, aromatase inhibitor, ductile carcinoma in situ. What do these words mean? How are you going to decide what to do if you can't even say what you have? This is Olivia Newton-John. As soon as you get your diagnosis, you can go to breastcancer.org. It's a special place on the internet where you can learn how to say all those breast cancer words and find out what they mean. At breastcancer.org, you can learn more about your particular kind of cancer and your treatment options. Prepare a list of questions for your next doctor's visit and get all kinds of other useful information to guide you and your family through this. Breastcancer.org. The first place to go the minute you find out you have breast cancer. Wildfires burn millions of acres across the country each year. And each year, wildland firefighters battle to contain them. But they can't do it alone. For some communities, it's not a question of if wildfires strike, but when. And a single ember can travel more than one mile. 
As it twists and turns and floats through the air, that single ember can find its way to where you live and can ignite and destroy your home or your community. That single ember can be just as dangerous as the wildfire itself. You can't control where the ember will land, but you can control what happens when it does. You can take action now to prepare your home and your community for wildfire. Get fire adapted. Learn what you can do now to reduce wildfire damage later at fireadapted.org. Prepare, protect, prevail. A public service message brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Learn more at fireadapted.org. Would your business survive a disaster? Nearly two-thirds of businesses aren't prepared for an emergency, and 40% of businesses that experience a disaster never recover. Make an emergency plan now before it's too late. For a free online tool that helps you develop an emergency plan to keep your business up and running should disaster strike, visit ready.gov forward slash business. Brought to you by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the American Red Cross, and the Ad Council. Empower your life. Empower Radio. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio. Welcome back. Hey, if you're inspired by our conversation today, and I hope you are, I invite you to share it with others and maybe even listen to it again. You can do that by visiting my website at thedrjulieshow.com, where you'll find a listing of upcoming guests as well as all of the archive links. Again, that's the drjulieshow.com. Also stay connected all week on our Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie, where we continue the conversation. And join us over at goodofthewhole.com. We're starting so many new fun projects coming along, and you're going to want to be a part of it. Again, that's goodofthewhole.com. I'm here today with Terry Patton, and we're talking about a new republic of the heart. You can find out so much more about Terry's work and voice at terrypatton.com. That's T-E-R-R-Y-P-A-T-T-E-N.com. Terry, thank you for writing this book. I'm intrigued and inspired by the potential of evolutionaries picking that up. And I love how you even talk about um, the ecologists, innovators, and evolutionaries. I want to get to that in a minute. But let's talk about this book. Um, Why did you write this? And what is is a new republic of the heart? (laughs) Well, um, in some sense, this book has been wanting to write itself through me for a long time. There was a uh, an impulse to consider some of these big issues that's been building up in me for over 20 years. In fact, I I wrote a uh, I made an attempt to write a book like this about 20 years ago, and it and it just wasn't mature enough. There, there's a kind of integration of most in, the things that you know when we ask ourselves what really matters what matters most you know we could answer that well waking up is what matters most or maybe what matters most is love or maybe what matters most is you know making a difference in our world in the lives of others or maybe even what matters most is is making a difference in this trajectory of unsustainability and helping us come in for a soft landing so that we can live in a sustainable relationship with this beautiful planet. We could go on and on with answers like that. And it begins to dawn on me that, in a sense, all of those different kinds of answers 
are tied together, that, that there's a, a way that everything that matters most is connected, that the challenges that we're facing right now require whole system change, that the kind of beings that can make a difference in this crazy time Require, you know, require we have to become different kinds of people. That the, the, the change that we're hoping for, it's not just going to come from the presidents and the secretaries general and the premiers and the uh, first secretaries and the, the important world leaders or, or the wealthy and, and, and the rich. You know, it's not just going to be Elon Musk and Bill Gates and George Clooney and Bono or whoever we might be looking to. That that. that the will of, of, of the whole human species is distributed. So some part of that responsibility for being the change is in everybody's chair, the chair you're sitting in, the chair I'm sitting in. So recognizing that, I, I felt that there was uh, an integration of the different aspects of the inner work with this recognition of, our, of, of, of this you know, we're all in this lifeboat together. So that's why I wrote this book. And in writing it, what I realized was at a certain point, wow, this crisis has gotten to an extreme place. And it requires a, a stage transition to another stage of, of the adulthood of the human species, another stage of our collective maturity. And that's a revolutionary change. It really is a revolutionary change. It's as revolutionary as the transformation that takes place when somebody wakes up, when we have a kind of enlightenment experience. Even if it's temporary, there's a sense of a, a radical shift, a stepping over a threshold into a, a whole new reality. And so if we think of that revolutionary change as, as going on in, in us as individuals, we realize it also goes on in every relationship we have, that we have our ways of being friends or lovers or husband and wife or whatever our key relationships are. And each of those relationships is a place where forces of wholeness and fragmentation are always in play. And a more radical reassertion of wholeness is possible in every relationship, in every family, in every organization, in every group, in every nation. And what lies on the other side of that? Well, the whole integrated intelligence of the being has to guide us. And that intelligence is, you know, we think of it as being in our brains, in our heads. But, you know, there's a whole field called neuroenterology that's all about the brain and the gut. And there's another field called neurocardiology that's all about the brain and the heart. And different kinds of knowing and different kinds of power reside in those different centers. People are kind of sometimes horrified by the incredible willpower that uh, President Trump is able to exert. Well, that's, that's an expression of a very powerful gut level, will. And, and that's an important center in the human system. But all those capacities in the head, in the gut, and in the heart are integrated at the very center of the being, at the heart. And so the, there's a lot that's healthy in us already. 
in some sense, this revolution is already underway. There's so much goodness and, 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 and intelligence and love and care and, and brilliance and generosity that are expressed in people all over the world. So in a sense, we might say that this revolution is, is already underway. You know, each of us, in the ways that we're awakening, in the ways that we're growing in our capacity to live our ideals, we're an expression of that. But in another sense, we're up against it. Human civilization seems to be coming apart. We need way more of that. So paradoxically, this is a revolution that is already underway. In a way, it's already guaranteed. It's a fait accompli. It's going to happen. In another sense, it really is nipping and tucking. It needs our heroic championing. In another sense, so much is still ahead of us, and it need, you know, it's like we have to start that revolution. All of those things could be said at once. And what's on the other end of it, in a way, is the health in us reasserting its dominion. It's as if the heart, we think of the heart not just as a center in the body, but as the, the very principle, like the heart of existence, the very center and core of reality, is needing to reclaim the whole human world. And if we, we think of it, it's as if we have a loyalty to that, that there's a future ordered state. You know, when there's, a, in chaos theory, when uh, a chaotic system is getting more and more chaotic, uh, it can make a leap to a higher order. And, and out of chaos can come a higher order. And that's the, the only way you can do the math for that is you have to look at the future ordered state and identify, and they do this in mathematical terms, so that they call it a strange, strange attractors, the, the principles of the future order. So in a way, this new republic of the heart is, is already what you're loyal to. You're loyal to that in your commitment to truth, in your commitment to compassion, in the fact that you're more motivated by generosity than you are by fear, at least in your best moments. And so in that sense, this new republic of the heart is just getting stronger and stronger as more and more we're realizing what a dead end our separation and antagonism toward each other really are. And we're coming into a new, deeper loyalty, a kind of patriotism for, you know, I'm an American and I love my country and I, I'm not wanting to suggest anything less than passionate patriotism. But in, in a sense, there's something deeper than just the, the outer forms of the Constitution and and, and, and so forth, it, 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 it's like the, the heart itself is calling us, the health of our grandchildren, the biodiversity of life on Earth, the opportunity for a human-friendly planet to be present for our great-grandkids and so forth. Those are, those are like the, the wealth, you might say, of another polity. You know, that, that's a $6 word for, for a political political unit like a like a nation or a country and in a sense we're all growing in our capacity to be citizens of such a new republic of the heart and so 
it, I gradually noticed that that was the case, and 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 I and so I chose those words as the title because they they resonated for me as a vision of what I think is already dawning in so many of us. Yeah, it's beautiful, and I think of this Republic of the Heart. I when you were talking, I was remembering just recently. I um, I shared a couple videos of of a variety of people answering the same questions. And I shared it with my husband the other day and said, what, what do you sense is different between these different people? And it was a great success in a little conversation because he could literally sense those who had dropped into their heart. And we're really communicating from this place of this open heart and those who were still in their head and trying to answer the question. And it reminds me of um, a quote in your book where you said, profound intelligence and creativity can emerge from real meetings of awakened hearts and minds. Can you speak more about that? Because I think this new Republic of the Heart really is about us coming together in this awakened place and watching exponentially what can emerge from our we space and coming together. Well, one of the things that I notice is that it's very hard to have the kind of conversation that really advances our understanding. Very often people debate and take turns. Let me tell you something that I think, and it'll, it will we'll wrap out something that we've already thought before, something that is, it's not news to us, it doesn't surprise us, we're, we're just wrapping out something we think we know. And, and then the conversation partner will wait their turn, and then they'll wrap out the thing they know. And they kind of listen to each other, but it's not like they're really interested in learning from each other. Whereas I, I think that we're in a moment now in which the... You know, uh, right now, our people don't like to talk about it because it is so disturbing. But global warming is a much more formidable problem than hardly anybody admits to themselves. And in fact, the actual readings of our temperatures and extreme weather events and carbon dioxide parts per million are tracking worse than what were previously imagined as the worst case scenarios in the IPCC and limits to growth projections, you know, a couple, couple, three, four decades ago. So the, 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 the tendency is for us to contract in the face of that. The tendency is for us to feel like that's a darkness. And yet, you know, all through our, uh, our evolution, all the years that we were hunter-gatherers, stretching back hundreds of thousands and millions of years, we were living right next to death all the time. And yet, what was joyous in life, you know, we weren't constantly terrorized and constantly in grief. We were bouncing back from it more robustly. So even if what lies ahead for us might include some pretty hair-raising disasters, it might be that these floods and superstorms, you know, there may be big chunks of the earth that get desertified. There may be some pretty hair-raising things. And yet, 
I think we're going to be restored to a sense of possibility. We're going to wake up out of the, you know, we're so buffered from death and so buffered from, you know, we, we try to keep loss at bay. When, when loss intrudes upon us even more, we, we find ourselves being grateful. Oh, well, you know, we lost all our things, but we still have each other. The sense of the gift of just being alive kind of wakes back up. And, and so the kind of conversation then that you have, like facing problems that you just know you don't have good enough answers for, well, that's one where you, you actually drop in and you speak from what's deepest and you're disarmed and you're, and you're, and you're, and you're open and you're, 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 you're present and like, wow. Julie, we're in this lifeboat together, you know, and, 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 and it might be sinking in, in some ways, like, and, and we don't know how to, how to get past that. How can, and, 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 and our hearts start to break, and, and, and we're, we're in the question in such a tender way. And so, I, you know, well, I, I've noticed this about it. And then if you take that and you go, yeah, I, that's true, that's important. Well, you know, when I feel that, I notice this. Oh, yeah. That if we take in what the other says, we let it change us, and we allow it to open us up to new perceptions. That that then our conversation advances human understanding, and it also draws us into greater intimacy. And I think those are the kinds of conversations that are needed everywhere. But we have to unlearn this habit energy. What we see on TV, the talking heads debating. They're not humbly in a shared inquiry. They're trying to look good and have the snappy response. It's like the presidential or other political debates. And, and we know that nobody learns in those contexts. But the whole human species needs to learn. And we're not going to be able to answer these questions just as individuals. We have to answer them together. So learning to actually listen to each other and, and listen to the questions that we all face together, that could transform our conversation. Mm. I, I couldn't agree more. And I really appreciate how you put that into context for us of, of really that deeper listening and, and being in this unified space of, of inquiry. And you also talk about, you know, really needing this unified voice. You, you, you point out ecologists, innovators, and evolutionaries. And I really appreciate your conversation about this. For a lot of our listeners, we have a lot of um, visionary leaders and change makers who tune in. Many of them are the evolutionary category. Many are ecologist category and innovators. I'd love for you to speak to that, if you would, for just a minute. Yeah. Well, I think that under these circumstances in which our old ways of being human are just not going to work much longer, there are groups of people having serious conversations. And in a way, it's like human intelligence is in dialogue with itself, attempting to understand how to most adequately create a future that we want. And the people we're most aware of who are having those conversations are highly rational, scientific, technologically sophisticated. They're, many of them are entrepreneurs and 
and, and they're they're interested to try to solve our problems in a, in a, in the in the re, with a rational frame, usually with technological solutions, often with businesses, and they're actively moving ahead to create a future that they think will be more survivable. But their way of relating to things is reflects a worldview, and like every worldview. Their worldview is true about a lot of important things, but it's also partial. It does not see everything. So the innovators are people like Elon Musk and Bill Gates, some of the people I mentioned before, but Sam Harris, uh, uh, they're, they're, and, and they are in dialogue. Max Tegmark, uh, uh, Nick Bostrom, you know, really looking at a serious, in, in a serious way at the human future and trying to account for what it needs. But they don't realize that their worldview limits what they can think about. Now, there are another group of people that I call the ecologists, who are people who have really looked closely at the earth and the fact that there really is no thriving for us if our mother planet is, if, if its balances are so thrown off that it no longer furnishes us with conditions in which human beings can thrive. The ecologists are really interested in the health of the what they sometimes call the more than human world. And so people who are really wise in this category, like Joanna Macy or uh, Bill McKibben or uh, Richard Heinberg or Michael Dowd, uh, these are people I would call ecologists. Some of them are quite revolutionary, like Derek Jensen, and they are, they have had the courage to face the implications of the climate science. The innovators are aware of the climate science, but they, they, they haven't shifted from that mental intelligence to an embodied intelligence that takes into account the, the full reality of it. One of the things that I had to go through in order to write this book was a actually a series of, of dark nights of the soul in which I really took in the implications of, of just how badly we have, have, in a sense, mortgaged our children's future in order to consume more comfort and convenience today. And the ecologists have, have had the integrity and the wisdom to know that there's no there's no thriving for the human beings if there isn't a thriving for the whole living earth. And, and therefore, they're accounting for aspects of reality that the, the innovators are not. On the other hand, very often, the ecologists will begin to think they know that everything is falling apart and going to hell in a handbasket. And, and, and they have some, you know, their perspective, too, is true about some very, very important things, but also partial. So that's why I think evolutionaries have a unique contribution to the conversation, because we have been working at waking up and, and noticing that our worldviews are, are non-ultimate. We're, we're used to taking a look at the way we are looking at things and outgrowing our, you know, we We've gone through a shedding of the skin of our perceptual lens through which we see everything. And, and so we're able, if we're really at our best, 
we're able to challenge uh, ourselves and others to go beyond their frames and their worldviews. So I think that we, and more than that, we're also awake to the, the divine nature of things, you know, to the, to the spiritual and existential dimensions of, of the conversation. We, we've probably worked especially hard to awaken the, the heart intelligence and, and, and we have, uh, I, th- I think we're pretty richly informed in those ways. So I think that, the, and, 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 and I think we have some important contributions to the conversation. We can see how culture is evolving, how consciousness is evolving. We, with all of those frames, we bring a lot to the conversation. Now, even we, though, have a worldview that is both true and partial. And what we also are, can be aware of is that in order to have a rigorous conversation, everybody creates rules around the conversation, things that are respected, things that are disrespected. And as a result, the innovators are really only talking to each other. And the ecologists, unfortunately, are really only being heard by and talking to each other. There's a lot of wealth and credibility. It's much more mainstream, and, and you know, the, the innovators are the more powerful of these three groups, the most powerful. But all of them are contributing unique things. Each of them is a center where human intelligence is in dialogue with itself at the edges of possibility about creating the future that we want to live into. And yet, these three bodies of conversation, bounded by their worldviews and their ideas of what's important and how to talk, are are having non-intersecting conversations. So that's why I've called in the book for those three conversations to intersect, and I'm interested to convene conversations, these kinds of conversations that are a mutual inquiry, not just a debate, that bring together people with each of those three differing kinds of worldviews so that the best of human intelligence can really talk about the kind of future we want to create, informed by all of our best intelligence of all kinds. Mm. And wow, what conversations those will be when they come to the table with those awakened hearts and minds to just muse into that unknown future together. So thank you for that brilliant invitation. And this conversation today has been so enlightening and I, I wish we had more time because there's so much more we could say but Terry thank you for joining us today and, and sharing this book with the world and sharing your voice with our listeners today thank you so much Julie it's been a delight and I look forward to future conversations with you and I want to leave our listeners with one of your quotes Terry which I love and so I'm going to go ahead and share this as we close our predicament is calling on us to simultaneously volunteer for the supreme commando raid behind enemy lines and to join a metaphorical monastery and give up our lives to the wholeness that sustains us. And we are asked to renew these commitments again and again in every new moment. We are called to a robust and dynamic new for a spiritual activism or an activist spirituality that fuses the inner work of personal transformation and awakening with the outer work of service 
social entrepreneurship, and activism. You've been listening to the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Thank you for tuning in with us today. And remember, together, we are creating connections for the good of the whole. Until next time, I'm sending you a world of love. Bye for now.